the thing that would get the firefighters in trouble was basically a combination of older tactics and the fact that they had turnout gear. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Dan Madrakowski. He's an award-winning fire engineer that has been conducting research for and with the fire service for almost 35 years. In our conversation, Dan shared with me how the researchers and firefighters began working together, some of what we've learned along the way, and where we're going from here. There's so much to learn from the work that Dan and his associates are doing. Get your pencil and paper out. Today's going to be an informative episode. I hope you enjoy. So, Dan Madrakowski, welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to sit down and talk to you. Uh, for those who don't know who uh, Dr. Dan Madrakowski is, he's an award-winning scientist who focuses his career on the fire service. And there's a lot of detail in there, but I know you've worked for NIST back in the day, and mm-hmm. now you're working for the UL, and your research continues to move forward. And I would love to have a to have a conversation about how far the fire service has come and, and where we've come from and how we are moving the ball forward. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about who Dr. Majikowski is and uh, who the person is, who the man is behind the white lab coat. Well, I've been involved in... Uh with the fire service pretty much since the 90s. Um, start working in NIST about 10 years previous to that. And um, we had some projects for the U.S. Fire Administration, uh, looking at uh, Class A foams, uh, looking at the sizing of uh, station wear and things like that at NIST that uh, kind of got us started. But at that time, we were doing research for the fire service. We were kind of disconnected. We'd do our research. We'd give the report to USFA. It would go to their learning resource center, and we never really had a lot of continuing interaction with the fire service to see how the information was used or how it was getting in the standards or, or what have you. And uh, that changed quite a bit uh, when uh, Phoenix Fire Department um, decided to engage with us a little bit. Uh, I had done a model and an analysis of a fatal fire in Washington, D.C., the Cherry Road fire that occurred in 1999. And at the time, I ended up in Phoenix for another meeting. Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, <clears throat> that that event was one of the, the first times that we modeled a fire where flow path was demonstrated. Is that correct? Correct. correct. And it was uh, one of these deals where they were coming in from the front, and uh, the sliding glass doors on the basement level had gotten ventilated. The basement flashed over. And then it exposed the firefighters that were trying to attempt to get to the stairs to 15 to 20 mile an hour, high velocity gases. Uh, one fell, one of the firefighters had his face piece melt and he died on the scene. And, uh, another firefighter died due to his burn injuries. He was burned over 95% of his body. And, uh, Joe Morgan actually survived that fire. Although he was burned over 65% of his body. If I remember correctly, he ended up leaving the job. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. His, uh, uh, He's doing well. He's doing some fire safety uh, consulting work, and uh, we stay in touch with him to this day. Um, as recently as last year, he was still getting operations as a result of the burns that uh, that he had received. But we had this model, and we had some information that it didn't appear was being shared with the fire service very widely. And so knowing that Chief Brunacini was somewhat of an innovator and, and uh, had a TV station, you know, in his department and whatnot, cutting edge kind of guy. Uh, I put a cold call into the Phoenix Fire Department 
and uh, to see if I could meet with him and show him what we've got. And, uh, lo and behold, he agreed. And so the next day I was there with a couple of his staff chiefs and showed him the fire model. And he says, well, Dan, the thing about that fire model is you got to run it on a computer, don't you? And I said, yeah. He says, ah, that's, that doesn't do us much good. And he says, uh, he says, here's how I communicate with my guys. He says, I make posters. And we put them in places where it's quiet for them, you know, and they have a few minutes to look at it, you know, when they're in the bathroom stalls. He says, so if we can translate some of this information to a poster like that, then we're, we're good to go. I said, I think we can do that. And uh, then since he was uh, aware of us uh, and we were doing some building collapse work, uh, he let us know that he had a warehouse available in downtown Phoenix and uh, that if we wanted to come and instrument it and do some building collapse tests there, he was he was fully supportive of that. And we came out to do that and uh, was spring of 2001. And the week, the day that we arrived in town uh, was the day of the uh, Southwest supermarket fire that uh, killed Brett Tarver. And uh, so needless to say, we packed up and went home. Um, Chief Brunacini called us back and said, okay. We want you to come back, and also now we have, as a result of this incident, we have more questions. You know, we're teaching our guys to hug the floor, and that's where the air is and all this kind of stuff. Is there really fresh air down there? You know, so can you, when you instrument this warehouse, let's put some oxygen probes near the floor and see if there's really oxygen to breathe down there. And uh, as you and I know, when the fire burns and it creates a pressure and it pushes down the hot gases, it pushes them down all the way to the floor. Now, if you're close to an intake vent, maybe within four, five, six feet of a, a doorway or something like that, then maybe there's an, op an opportunity there for some fresh air. But if you're further away from the door in a large building like that, there's... It's just CO and CO2 and yeah. uh, reduced well, amount of oxygen. All those gases go yeah. everywhere and displace all that O2. So uh, as a result of that, then we did additional tests with Phoenix where uh, uh, you guys had an area where you could test. I think they used it for uh, 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 water treatment area or sludge area treatment area or something. But four houses were built, and uh, two of them had uh, plywood with just uh, asphalt shingles on them, and two of them had a plywood subroof with uh, ceramic tile on them. And we were looking again at collapse and how fast they collapsed and that kind of thing. Uh, we were looking at the difference also between plywood and OSB. And we found out there really wasn't a significant amount of difference. Um, we had a number of mannequins on there uh, that were uh, on wires to one of your ladder trucks so that, that we didn't lose the mannequin in the fire every time. As soon as the mannequin started to fall through, they could fly away. So that was one of the things in the training video. If only you could fly, this wouldn't be a problem. Um, and again, that was a result as a result of an incident that occurred in Phoenix where you had uh, a firefighter, you know, go through a ceramic tile roof. So uh, at that point, we kind of made a transition in that we started to do research with the fire service. And that made all the difference in the world. And of course, then we continued that working with New York and Chicago and Houston and others, sometimes as a result of a line of duty death and sometimes just as a result of opportunity or challenges that they had in their department, like with FDNY, the wind-driven fires. So um, time marches on, and and uh, here we are almost 20 years later after being in Phoenix. Well, so what are some of the things that, that you uncovered early? So you, once, you start at, once you start talking to the fire departments, you start kind of peeling back the onion, so to speak, 
know, where the, the engineers meet the operators and say, well, we have these really valid questions driven by, you know, behaviors that we, we see or we think we feel, we think we experience this on the fire ground, but we have no way of knowing for sure. It's anecdotal at best. Did that generate a lot of questions? Well, so in the case of the wind-driven fires in New York, that started uh, in earnest 2006, 2007 through 2009. And um, one of the issues there, uh, as we had battalion chiefs and captains working with us and they were experiencing the fires with us and they're looking at the flow path and the value of closing doors to isolate the flow path and protect the buildings or an order of operation to protect members in a stairwell, uh, you know, to, but working your way to get control of the fire room door or getting the getting water on the fire of the fire room before you vent it up in the bulkhead. You may initially have released smoke out of the stair, but then you want to close it all up again and and maintain control. So there we're doing all these things and they're seeing they're seeing how they can control the smoke movement throughout the structure and how they can get a better handle on the fire where based on uh, injuries and a couple of line of duty deaths, you know, they were they were having a hard time trying to work their way down that hall, basically between where the fire was and where the fire wanted to go. So as they started to get it, then they're saying, you know what, um, this this wind-driven fire is really just a, you know, extreme case of ventilation, and maybe we don't understand building ventilation. Period, you know, and we have things in our books that we're going to vent for fire, uh, or we're going to vent for life. And uh, that's all very good. But as they realized, physics and the fire don't read their books. Right. And uh, so if you have a vent-limited fire and you allow air to get to it and you're not putting water on it, the fire's going to get bigger. And there's just no two ways about that. So that's why that coordination is so important. So I think those were some of the aha early on eye-opening things now a little more than 10 years ago that people said, okay, now we want to, you know, start really working on this. And, and Steve Kerber had moved uh, from NIST to UL at this time. And uh, he was doing, let's break the problem down. We're going to just do horizontal ventilation on these two different structures. Then we're just going to do vertical ventilation on it, although vertical is combination of horizontal and vertical. And then we're going to use PPV fans and PPA tactics to see how this stuff works. And now we're in the business of putting it all back together. Uh, our team just recently finished uh, experiments in garden apartments and strip malls and larger single-family homes, all acquired structures, to look at the coordination of that attack method. The order of events for opening it up, water on the fire, and, and ventilation to get the smoke out of the building. And the next tests coming up this spring have to do a search and rescue. Where are viable, where can viable victims be found? What's the best way to open up the building and gain access to the building to give the victims the best chance based on your size up, based on where the fire is located and the extent of the fire. So we're going to do 20 experiments like that this spring, just outside of Philadelphia. That's going to be a very exciting series of tests. When we started introducing this into our organization, you know, a lot of the research had been done on uh, wind driven fires and flow path. And, um, you know, the slicers acronym was, was thrown out there as kind of a scaffolding for how we might do business. And it's interesting to me because organizationally, you know, as firefighters, you know, the two things that we hate, right. Change in the way it is. Um, but trying to offer evidence-based practices, right. My question is, I guess, is, you know, we met some resistance because, the firefighters are saying, Hey, we, we've experienced this for however many years. We know what's happening in these structures. 
but there's some things that have changed. And I think the thing that has evolved from in our tactics or in our operational context is the fuel. And so what I guess my question is, is, you know, how prolific is that in this problem is that the fuels have evolved and they're no longer, you know, the legacy fuels. Now we have these modern furnishings all made of plastics and, you know, spun hydrocarbons, et cetera, really contributing to the problem. How much more of a factor is that than, I mean, or how much as a factor is it? I mean, it's a significant factor because pound for pound uh, uh, in the laboratory, we measure the amount of uh, potential energy or the amount of energy that a fuel can give off. We, we call it the heat of combustion. And so how many megajoules per kilogram or basically how much energy per pound. And so if you look at gasoline, for example, and compare that to wood, gasoline uh, per pound has about three times the amount of energy to burn and give off that a pound of wood does. And then as you look at different plastics, they're somewhere in between. They could be, uh, if they're fire retardant plastics, they could be very similar to wood. And if they're not, they could be one and a half or two times greater than that. And as a re- and the chemical structure, because they're so energetic, they don't burn clean at 21% oxygen, which is what we have in our atmosphere. So they burn dirty. So if you have... Uh, familiarity with like acetylene, for example. When you burn acetylene and you don't pre-mix it with additional oxygen, it's a very weak flame, but it's an incredibly sooty flame. You're not getting your money's worth out of that fuel, <laughs> right? But then when you pre-mix oxygen with it, uh, what you find is that uh, now it burns clean and you have a white or a white blue flame. Very hot can melt steel, right? Weld steel together. So um, the amount of oxygen is really the key to how much energy a fuel can give off. Basically, 13.1 megajoules per kilogram of every kilogram of oxygen burned. So that's why the ventilation to the fire is so critical. So here we have filled our homes with this fuel-rich environment. It's stuff that even if you give it 21% oxygen, it's still going to produce very toxic black smoke. And uh, then we limit it even further and what it does is it fills that your house or that the structure on fire with fuel. So the fact that the sofa's on fire and has all this potential energy really isn't the big deal. The big deal is it's been burning for five or ten minutes before you arrived, and now it's filled that house with fuel. Smoke is fuel, and that's what'll get you in trouble because you the flame spread through that smoke. You can't outcrawl it. You can't outrun it because it can move at ten miles an hour or so. But well, the thermal propagation <clears throat> is so is so huge, and these. And modern construction is contributing to this as well, because now st- these modern structures are are reaching ventilation limited properties Absolutely. more rapidly, right? Because the structure is so tight. Well, they're wrapped uh, in plastic yeah. and insulated. Yeah. Well, there's a, a great story that a friend of mine uh, told me. He was driving down the road in one of our old neighborhoods, and he could see this old house with whirly birds on top, and he saw a sign out front. They're doing, they're remodeling it. So he's a construction guy. So he jumps off the truck and he runs over there, and he's like, "Hey, what's going on?" And they're like, oh, we're remodeling it. And he goes, well, you still have whirlybirds on top. What did you do there? We're not, we don't want to patch the roof. So we're just sealing the whirlybirds. Wow. Sealed the gable end as well, which is what piqued his interest. So here you have what looks like legacy construction built in the, you know, the 50s and 60s. And yet it's a modern layout on the inside. You know, it's, it's efficient for, you know, uh, cooling and heating, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's super tight envelope. Energy efficient. And yeah. that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. So it's super energy efficient. And what does that do for us as firefighters? It creates this, this, uh, super tight envelope that's going to be ventilation limited earlier. And what this, where this leads me is not only do we reach 
potential problems like flashover sooner, et cetera. But we talk about, you were touching on you doing research with rescue, say search and rescue. So what is your, what do you anticipate discovering as you start looking at this when, from the search and rescue profile? Because I feel like, you know, when you, you fill the space with toxic gases, the probability of the survivability goes down, right? You don't, you have less tenable spaces. So that's a real problem for us. Well, certainly it's understanding what happens before you get there. Uh, but then it also it's understanding as you start to uh, make entry or open the building up, uh, how rapidly you can mitigate the hazard or change those conditions for the better. And so, uh, for example, when we did our fire attack project, we had a 20-foot-long hallway. We had four-bedroom house with some bathroom space, you know, in the hallway. So it's a pretty long hallway coming down from the living room and kitchen area. And uh, we had the fires in the end bedroom. And when we had both bedrooms at the end of the house on fire and their windows were vented, so flames were coming out, when you open the front door, uh, basically more of the front door was now available for intake air because there was more exhaust available uh, outside of those windows. And so what that did was that took the toxic hazard away from anybody that would be laying on the floor in the hallway. Uh, but the bigger concern for them, if they were closer to the end, would be the thermal hazard. They'd be in trouble. And if the firefighters didn't start getting water to cool the gases, then the direction the flames are going to go is they're going to start following the path of least resistance back to the front door as well. But as long as you start cooling the hallway as soon as you could and working your way down to the fire room, you know, that took that hazard away completely. So it was uh, pretty good. So that's, it really boils down to a few simple things, which is sizing up the structure, assessing the survivability in the space, and then changing those conditions as rapidly as you can with ineffective and properly placed uh, hose stream, right? Okay, so that begs the question. This is the controversial one. Solid bore or straight stream? Well, with the nozzles today, solid bore and straight stream aren't that different. So I, so I know you guys in, did some water mapping. Re, in research, terms right? of reach and in terms of air entrainment and whatnot, they're very similar. Now, part of it gets in the training, right? Some people are worried that, you know, the young guy's going to twist it the wrong way or, or whatnot. And uh, some places have, they don't uh, do maintenance on their fog nozzles and they have a lot of construction in their area. So they have a lot of debris in the water lines and the nozzles tend to get clogged with debris that can small enough to pass through the pump, but gets caught in the nozzle. And they think based on pressure that they may be flowing 150 gallons a minute, but they're not. You know, so that's where there's some advantages to the solid stream. It's going to let that stuff, those little pebbles pass. Um, the reality from the mapping study and the air entrainment study is if you start moving that solid stream around in a circular fashion, it acts very much like a fog nozzle in terms of air entrainment. And again, it's all about knowing your tools and knowing when to, and when and how to use them. So there are times when you want to create a pressure front in front of you. And that may be a time you would want to, you know, give it a twist and have a narrow fog and whip it around moving down the hallway because you're vented ahead of you. Or you do the same thing with the straight stream. You just got to rotate it around and move and you'll push it out ahead of you. There are other times, maybe if you're doing an exterior attack where you don't want to do that, right? You want to make a broken stream off the ceiling or off the edge of the window and get big drops of water falling in that fire room uh, without creating pressure or blocking that vent because you want to allow smoke to come out. So again, it's just about knowing your tools, knowing the cause and effect relationship, and uh, you can be a, a more effective firefighter based on and make better decisions based on the scenario that you're met with at the fire ground. 
So are, are you seeing, uh, in your travels, are you seeing folks beginning to change their operational behaviors? <clears throat> yeah. Um, in some places you'll run across some, uh, guys that have been on the fire department. This is rare, but they've been on the fire department for 40 years. There's a guy in Philly has been on for 50 years and, uh, they didn't have turnout gear. And they didn't have SCBAs. And they had to start fighting the fire from the outside in. <clears throat> so this isn't a new thing for them. For a lot of people in Chicago, uh, they were late to the game getting turnout gear. It was 2006, late 2006, early 2007 before they got turnout gear. And as a result, they never gave up the deck gun attack or quick water or whatever, whatever you want to call it. So their engineer, if they had a, a three-story or two-and-a-half-story house going, wood frame house, and they got flames coming out of the front porch or out of the front windows, the engineer's giving it a quick shot while they're pulling line and, and you know, forcing the door. Um, so that this wasn't really a change for that for many of the folks in, in parts of the city. Um, folks that have a challenge, a little bit of a challenge, was uh, people that, you know, started fighting fire in the 90s or so. They they were used to turnout gear. This was their impression of this is how we've always done it. The thing that would get the firefighters in trouble was basically a combination of older tactics and the fact that they had turnout gear. Old school, they got to fight fire, st- fighting the fire from the outside to cool it down so they can get in. Once they're in, they've got to vent as they go because they don't have an air pack on their back. But they've cooled it down enough that they're not typically not at a risk of flashover, a rapid transition of flashover. So they can do that. Well, now we have firefighters that understood the vent as you go, but didn't understand the why, didn't understand that, hey, we're not cooling at first because we're in a much hotter environment because we can be with the turnout gear. And then they start venting as they go. And that's when we see them draw the fire to themselves and have to bail out windows or, or get stuck or, or what have you. I guess so the question is, you know, we're seeing some people change some behaviors, um, which is fantastic because I think that the knowledge that we bring to the game is what's going to keep us alive and help us, you know, affect rescue and, and help more people. And as hard as change can be, we have to be mindful of the, the evolving conditions. So we touched on this a little bit in the beginning. And I think it's interesting you talk about the 90s. Um, because you have this, you know, you have this, this advent of turnout gear. So we're able to go a little deeper into the fire because we have better thermal protection, but simultaneously you have, uh, the operational paradigm is shifting. So the fuels are getting hotter than kind of about 30 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that shift begun, began to happen. And meanwhile, yeah, it's getting hotter, but I don't feel it because I got perfect turnout gear on. And then in some <laughs> places they're even adding, you know, doubling hoods and doing all kinds of interesting uh, modifications, sure. right? And I think that I'm sure the manufacturers, if we just say, "Hey, we want better gear, we need we need to be able to get deeper," they're like, "Okay," uh, without considering, you know, why it would have to be uh, what's changing in the in the battlefield, so to speak, that's causing you to need that greater protection. Mm-hmm. So it's a really interesting uh, paradigm that shifted, causing these changes. So, like for our, for example, our organization, we've done. We're doing fire dynamics education in our, in our recruit academy and we did department wide training, et cetera. So we're starting to make moves forward as for training officers out there that are thinking about this. What, where, where are we headed next? And what are some things that if we, as we think forward and, and as far as having some vision, you know, we talk about the search and rescue piece. What are some other things we need to be thinking about? I mean, part of it is just getting some of the basic fire behavior education into the training. 
uh, because just having a better understanding of fire by itself, if every firefighter really understands how to best smoke meat or cook meat or sear meat or whatever is a simple example of using a uh, smoker or something with regard to control and ventilation and things like that, um, they'll better understand how to do that with a house fire, how to predict where the flow paths are going to be, how to know where they need to make their, where they can make the best effective attack from the fire. And of course, uh, the other thing that comes into play are your resources, the time of day, uh, neighborhood, what's the structure look like, all these things. So you want to have options. But if you really understand how fire works, then you've got, you know, a multitude of options. And then it's up to you to make the decision, what can I do the fastest? How can I get water on that the fastest? How can I get people out of the building the fastest? What is my my path to doing that? And um, that that's where we really got to focus a lot of energy. So now that we know all this stuff, we need to get it implemented in a broad sense across the United States uh, in fire departments all over, big and small. And so, you know, working with IFSA as we're doing now, um, uh, helping them get it in their training manuals, helping them develop skill sheets, uh, working with the U.S. Fire Administration, helping it, helping, helping them to get this in their programs. Uh, we're starting to work with the North American Fire Training Directors to get it into the state programs so that everybody has a common baseline of here's what fire physics and fire dynamics is. And then it's a, then you guys are smart enough. You have the tools, the tactics, the strategies. You know how to use it then. We're just giving you better baseline information and some evidence that, hey, here's how it works. Here's the cause and effect relationship. Sometimes the fire services, they don't want numbers, but when they talk to us, they all want numbers. Is that 30% better or 32.5%? What is that? You know, so those kind of things. Yeah. And we try to say, well, treat it as, as a range. This one's better than that one, you know, in terms of moving air. But, um, and then we have cancer issues, exposure as a big deal. And uh, the world is just continues to change, right? That's our one constant. So whether it's solar panels on the roof um, on the East Coast in the county where I live, they're proposing that every new house that's built has to have solar panels on it. I heard there's similar things going on in California. So it's only a matter of time, right? Um, If you're used to doing your primary ventilation from the roof, that could be a problem. Uh, So you have to adjust to that make sure that people understand the safety that that anytime the solar panels are exposed to light, even if it's from your rigs, they're energized with DC current, lock-on current. So They'll electrocute you, so you got to have appropriate practices. As our automobiles change, um, more electric cars, potentially uh, hydrogen fuel cell cars. Uh, the hydrogen fuel cells, you know, the challenge there is you can't see the flame. It burns clean. So everybody will have to be running around with a tick all the time looking for hot spots to see if something's burning. Uh, so, I mean, the hazards uh, and the threats are changing pretty dramatically. Uh, the incident in Surprise, Arizona with the uh, fuel cell store, the uh, lithium ion battery storage yeah. uh, out there for, that a utility was operating. They want to put similar types of uh, lithium ion storage facilities and high rises in Chicago and New York. Yeah, which makes uh, perfect sense, but they definitely have some new new hazards for us. Well, this, yeah, and this thought that, oh, the sprinkler system in the building is going to handle it, that's been proven, I think, to yeah. be not true. Yeah, right up until it can't. Yeah, so what, so what, what can the fire service do? How do you handle that? So we're uh, working on that, uh, working with the utility and the fire departments involved there in 
uh, surprise to get a better understanding uh, to help develop an after-action report and maybe a path forward of how to treat these kinds of uh, facilities. So there's uh, certainly no shortage of work uh, on the horizon. Do you you guys have enough support in Manpower to make that happen? Well, we're we're hiring. Personnel. We're, we're, we're trying to. Yeah, here's we're, a plug. We're building. I know, you, I know you were looking for some <laughs> interns earlier, and this is a opportunity to plug that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we're we're looking for some summer interns. Uh, we also have some jobs open for um, engineers, because um, we uh, we've gotten really good support from UL, and we've been fortunate enough here and there to get uh, research grants from DHS, and uh, so that helps us to behave with some urgency and be able to do more work. We just need to uh, keep building our staff to keep up with the demand. Wow. Dan, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit and, and share some of your thoughts and, and concerns about the fire service. Uh, it is so important that we invest in what we're doing because it can, because the job will kill you if you're not paying attention and we have to be evidence-based in our practices it's not enough to just have a good feeling about it. And it's the way it's always been. That's not acceptable anymore either. We have to be listening to the body of work that's being done around that can inform and help shape what we do. We're not saying that the engineers are going to tell you how to do your job. We're just going to tell you the backdrop that your job exists in the operational context. And then you figure out the behaviors that will help you execute fast, safe, et cetera. There's a quote that I read in some training materials a while back uh, from Brunacini. And it, it, I believe it was a note. It's a picture of a note that he wrote during one of the early research projects. And it is the fastest water is the best water. And I think that, that when you take, when you take that, it's so simple, but it's so uh, apropos when you think about the way in which we do business, you've got to change the environment right away. And, you know, if you can put the fire out, the problem begins to go away. <laughs> so, you know, in order to take care of Mrs. Smith and, and be the most effective and take care of your brothers and sisters on the fire truck, we got to take the fight out of this fire, get the energy out and get it to start cooling down. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and how it's helping inform the fire service, helping us do business. If, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with you in some way or send you an intern, how would they, uh, how are they going to reach you? Uh, go to our website. Uh, which is uh, ulfirefightersafety.org, and, uh, or just even Google UL Firefighter, and you should be able to link up to our website. And uh, you can not only find our online training programs and connect to our LMS, you can see what research we're working on, you can see what jobs we have open, and, uh, and contact information for the staff. Right on. Thank you very much. Dan, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan, for sharing your time and knowledge with us. Uh, if you want more information, the UL has a tremendous website chock full of information and training materials. I went ahead and placed their web address in the show notes, and you'll find uh, find that address there. If you're enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, and, and even if you're not, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, and write a review. Your feedback is hugely valuable tool for me uh, to make this a better podcast. And if you haven't already, go subscribe on whatever podcast platform you enjoy. Listen, the world is constantly evolving and changing. This includes the operational theater that we work in. Do not be lulled into complacency, believing that it will never happen to you. As we ponder research that's produced by men such as Dr. Madrakowski, we must constantly study and consider these new ideas and ask ourselves a couple of questions. One, will this idea allow us to do our job more safely and expeditiously? And two, 
And most importantly, will it help Mrs. Smith? If you can't answer yes to those two questions, you should reconsider what you're even thinking about doing. Now, go on, get out there and get some.